the podcast today. This is Scott Cunningham. This is the mixtape with Scott. It's a podcast devoted to the personal stories of a living economist. And it's a podcast that's meant to be an oral history, uh, non-random, uh, selected oral history of uh, the economics profession over the last 50 years. And as longtime listeners know, I'm really in love with the econometricians and I really love uh various parts of econometrics. And this is one of the times that I'm not really interviewing people that are in the necessarily like the causal inference tradition that I've been, that I'm always very interested in, but I'm also very interested in just econometricians. And I've interviewed Jeff Wooldridge and I interviewed Bill Green, and I've interviewed people that are kind of from the more structural areas like Pecos, uh, Chris Tabor and so on. And so today we have the opportunity to listen to uh, uh, a man that's at the University of Wisconsin. He's the Phillips Distinguished Chair in Economics, and he's the, I can never pronounce the first name, uh, the Havilmo Professor of Economics, Bruce Hansen. I think Bruce Hansen actually is someone that a lot of people know a lot about um, because Bruce has a phenomenal new textbook, uh, actually two new textbooks, uh, one on uh, one on econometrics and one on probability and statistics, two separate books that for a very long time were actually free textbooks that he put on his on his website. And when I was writing the mixtape, uh, Bruce was someone that I really looked up to uh, because I just would kind of observe him from afar, having this very productive, impactful career as an econometrician and and clearly caring about people learning econometrics and caring obviously about students because he would make his, his book free. And I thought that was uh, really inspirational. And so today we're going to talk to Bruce and he's going to talk us through his, his life, his life story and kind of lead into, uh, you know, his impactful career kind of starting out, you know, is what happened to him at Yale university and sort of those key events both in his life, but also at that time in econometrics, that time of, of history in econometrics that maybe did allow him to also be impactful. It's not always just underlying ability, but it's like underlying ability interacting with our uh, teachers, interacting with the schools that we're at, but also interacting to things that are changing in the world at the time that you don't maybe necessarily know, but that actually end up being you're in the right place at the right time. Although maybe Bruce would have been at the right place at the right time anywhere because he's so talented. So thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast again. I'm uh, excited to introduce you now to Bruce Hanson. I'm going to give you over to myself, Scott Cunningham, interviewing uh, Bruce. Uh, thanks a lot. And I'll see you right now. Okay, well, it is my pleasure today to have with me uh, a guest that I don't think we've ever actually spoken except on Facebook. Is that right, Bruce? I think that's correct. I think that's right. So uh, this is Bruce Hansen from the University of Wisconsin. Oh, well, shoot, I was usually going to ask. Let me take that back. Bruce, will you tell us your uh, full title at the University of Wisconsin? And uh, uh, yeah, just tell us your full title. I am um, the, I guess I'm the FIPS professor. Uh, endowed professor of economics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Okay, great. 
I actually had that you were the the Havel mode professor <laughs> of economics. Is, he, is that he, you've already you've already ghosted Havel mode? No, the, 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 this is complicated in the, in the way the, the UW works, but I, there's a few titles that the Havel and Mole name is simply because there's a research competition where um, they, they make an award and you get to name the the chair after your, any um, deceased person in your field that you choose. I picked uh, Havel Mole being one of the greatest econometricians uh in our history. But then more recently I was granted a, an endowed professorship that one of our alumni gifted. Um, and so that that's probably a better, a better name to use. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I actually have a discussion. I have a later and I was curious about, yeah. I was curious about your opinion of him. So, cause I, I had a feeling that's what it was. Cause Ta Chris Tabor said he like picked Heckman and so uh, I was like, oh, I bet there's like a thing here because I have a yeah. hard time believing there's like a yeah. alumni funding a Havelmo chair. <laughs> so I was yeah, like, wow, the Wisconsin students are very cool. All right. So, OK, well, before we get started, um, I was kind of curious if you had a memory of a vacation that maybe you took as a younger person, not necessarily your favorite vacation, but, you know, a vacation that you found kind of pops up in your memories every now and then. Sure. And th th this would take us back a few years and it doesn't have any econometrics or economics in it. I just um, takes me back to when I was probably around 15 or 16 years old that um, uh, probably I, I was a member of the Boy Scout uh, group and a group of us took a week long uh, hiking trip in the summertime in the Sierra Nevadas in California, I, that happened probably more than once, probably twice. And a part of the reason why it's special because my father was one of the leaders who took us out. So we went out on a backpacking trip and and uh, hiked every day, oh. stayed in different places, and uh, traversed through the uh, um, the the mountains. And one of the things I remember was uh, we got caught in a rainstorm at night and. Me and my fellow mate um, were lazy and hadn't put up our uh, rain flies very well. And so when we got up in the morning, we had to wring out our sleeping bags because oh. they were so soggy wet. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, what, that's life for a 15-year-old when you, you are lazy. <laughs> yeah. Were you an Eagle Scout? <laughs> no. No, I got uh, one thing shy of that. It wasn't important to me to finish. Uh, okay. 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 Well, that's cool. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. Oh. Uh, the community uh, is named Calabasas. At mm. that time, it was a, a new community. Uh, my parents moved in, bought a house, a new house in 1965. And at the end of the road, it was uh, barren and rabbits and, and things like that. Now Calabasas is kind of a, is considered a ritzy community. Oh. Some wealthy people, famous people live in some of the uh, hills near there. Uh, but at that time it was a, uh, I think an inexpensive bedroom community. Oh, but, wow. uh, so Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how close is that to Los Angeles? Um, by, by car, uh, half an hour, if there's no traffic. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Huh. You know, what was it like growing up in, growing up in that little town or that little area? Well, so, 
just like growing up in any suburb and I mean, it wasn't that we say it's not little it's on the edge of the san fernando valley so it, it it's on the edge of of a lot but on the other side is topanga canyon we were also a half hour drive from the malibu beach which is pretty famous so um it's i think pretty much like growing up from for many uh american I, teenagers i was a teenager in the late 1970s if you see films about that era yeah um, that's all i was about to ask it seems like you know uh those those like auteurs the 70s like even spielberg it always kind of felt like he was he was telling his stories in those areas is that right yeah oh yeah i think so Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just watching the film Licorice Pizza the other day, and that's actually set near where I uh, lived. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think that was a Spielberg, but I'm not sure. Oh, huh. But I might have that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what did your parents do for a living? My my mother ended up being a homemaker. My father was an electrical engineer oh. working in an aerospace firm. Okay. His parents were um, uh, immigrants uh, from Norway, arrived... Um, my my grandfather um, j j was apparently just jumped on a ship when he was 18 years old and ended up in the United States without speaking English or having any job skills, and that was how he how he lived his life. And my grandmother um, washed laundry to pull them through the Great Depression. Oh wow! So my father was raised in Tucson, Arizona, in a very simple situation, but they were fortunate to have the University of Arizona in their backyard. So he was able to attend uh, Arizona and, and got his uh, degree in engineering. And apparently as soon as he graduated, he just beelined it to Los Angeles saying that's where the jobs are. Oh, wow. Wow. Did you have um, any siblings? I have a, I have one of uh, two, my, um, I have a brother a year older and a sister three years younger. They're still around. Okay. Um, okay. And, so you're great. Yeah. So did you know your granddad? Did you know him? Yeah. Well? Was but he, he able to uh, speak he, English eventually? Yeah, yeah. My my they spoke spoke they both both spoke limited English. Um my grandfather passed away when it was around 10, so my mm -hmm. memories are more sketchy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so if I had found you on a Saturday, you know, before high school, what would I have found you doing? Before high school? Yeah, before high school. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, maybe hanging out with with friends, maybe um, doing schoolwork of one form or another. Um, maybe I was in the school band, so maybe I would have been playing music. Mm. Um, maybe reading. But I think at that age, I read read a lot. Yeah, yeah. What kind of so? What kind of instrument did you play in the band? So I played um, the trumpet. Then I also played the piano. Oh, okay. I, I, um, I still still do. Oh, you still play the piano now? You've never yeah, put it down? But but I have I stopped playing the trumpet after high school. Yeah, right. I played the saxophone, and the moment I quit, uh, I was like, it was as though I had never learned one thing. I mean, it was, and uh, so you played the piano your whole life. Yeah, you're pretty good. I guess you are yeah, pretty I'm good. decent. I'm decent. Oh, okay. I don't, I, on and off. Oh, that's cool. Wow. I always wish I had stuck with these instruments. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were sort of like at that middle school, beginning of high school era? Um, that was when I started getting interested in, in I, I think, in political, social issues. Mm. Uh, that I thought that I wanted 
um, I, I, somewhere around then I started getting very interested in modern politics, news issues, and what's going on in the world. And I guess I had the idea to go and change the world mm. in some way. That was the early seventies. Uh, yes, yeah, so I went in high. I started high school, I guess, nineteen seventy six, mm. and uh, we all thought the world was going to explode in a nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Um, now, now we have different issues. That <laughs> I was interested in the standard things that young people find find exciting. Right. Right. And so you, I, 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 I was thinking more like kind of like Paul, not really becoming a politician. I don't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah. But you were very motivated by these political problems at the time. Yeah. 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 That's what I think got me interested in social science. Mm. That, that's that the lever that they got in is just starting to, to read a lot about the world mm. and the issues that you, we all see around us, poverty and, and global inequality. Mm. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, that's interesting. So, so how large was this high school that you attended in this little area? I'm guessing 1,600 students. Oh, okay. okay. But I'm not sure. Maybe 1,000. So what would your teachers have said about you as a student back then, if they were like to describe you to your parents or describe you to each other or something? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I had complete misconceptions about that. <laughs> um, they probably would have said I was a good student, um, uh -huh. but, but, but a bit flaky. Uh huh. Um, not not very kind of a goof off in in some dimensions. Really, that that you felt like that even that you can see that now. Well, I, I think then I I tried to um, manufacture an aura of being a goof off because I wanted to to um, countervail the 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 simpleness of high school. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, what did you like? What you were you still kind of interested by the end of high school, my, mainly in this kind of political sort of you know kind of stuff, or was it changing? I think when I went off to college, I was thinking about studying political science or international relations. Mm. I think that was what I was. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident I was thinking along those lines. I don't think I knew the world word economics in a, in a serious way. Okay, so of course that was common then. There was no economics classes in schools. Um, we, what we would have read about economics would have been very misleading. Right, right, right. Sure, sure. So you go to Occidental College, a liberal arts college near where you're from, right? That's It wasn't that yeah. far away? How yeah. Come, how, what took you to Occidental? I think my, my parents uh, pushed me to think about going to a liberal arts college as something that would be more personal. Mm. And uh, and going to a school in the Los Angeles area was more affordable than someplace traveling away. So okay. I applied to um, Occidental and Pomona, which is another school in the area. And then Occidental gave me a better financial deal. Okay. Okay. Well, so, so what we still, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. I keep. Uh, that's why I picked it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what's Occidental like back then as a young person? What's it like when you step on campus? It's a. Yeah, in fact, I was back. I went back a few years ago. Um, hasn't changed that much. It's small. Um, it's not much different in size than the high school I went to. Oh, uh, okay. It, um, small classes. You really know all the other students around. Um, it's pretty confining. Mm -hmm. Was that positive or negative? Well, at first, it struck me as good. By the time I left, I thought it was not so good. Yeah, I thought it was too. I thought it was too narrow. 
I, I, um, I, I just found it a very small environment. Mm. You said narrow. What does that mean? Just narrow group of people and opportunities. We had the big universities. You have more opportunities for a diverse set of students to explore. Uh, yeah. Um, that. So by this, I mean, I think it was really good for, for, for my first two years for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You end up double majoring in economics and philosophy. That was really kind of interesting. How, can you tell me a little bit about. Yeah. Technically it was a that? single major in economics and, and my minor was philosophy, but it was, I was close to a philosophy major. So the, you, so it's, so how, how how did that happen? I started getting interested in philosophy during my freshman year in college and took a lot of philosophy classes. And I thought it was very interesting because it makes you think about, think, it makes you think about stuff. Yeah. And I, at the same time, I also, I so I took more philosophy classes early on. And then I started taking the econ classes later. And I was actually playing catch up. I think, I think I took most of the classes for the major my senior year. Oh, really? <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but I ended up not pursuing the degree in philosophy when I started realizing that it was less, um, leading to a career that I could pursue. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I remember going once to my favorite philosophy professor and saying, um, I'm thinking about getting a PhD with, so I go apply for PhD programs in philosophy and was told, no, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that this would not, um, I don't, I don't know if I was being told no for me right. or no in general. Yeah. And, and maybe it was no for me, but, um, you know, I was told that bluntly there's something like there's five positions a year in the profession. <laughs> yeah. If you're not one of the absolute stars, you're not going to get a job. And so that's right. just not a wise choice. Right. And right. I would say the same thing to people today, you know, difference with econ where um, it's not that it's easy to get a job, but there are jobs. Right, right, right. Well, so what's this moment where you first take an economics class? And how come you took one? Yeah, so what, one of the things I started realizing, I, I can't say exactly what the, um, I, so my first econ class I took as a sophomore, but what, why, um, what this transition per se was, but I started realizing that for me, that the study of political science was a study of the institutions and how things get um, through the system. But the study of economics was a study more of the impact of the policies themselves and what happens to the world. And I started realizing that for me, I was more interested in the impact of the policies than um, in the political process by how it's decided. So I quickly abandoned this idea of, of political science or anything like that uh, and I found that economics, and then I took economics, and then I found it to be easy uh -huh. and natural. And then I was kind of flabbergasted at some point. I was taking, I guess, intermediate micro, and I realized a lot of my classmates found it hard. Oh. That um, <laughs> you know, how do you solve these models? And other students found it challenging. And I, I guess it, it's for many of us who pursue the PhD, it's. Um, that we found it a straightforward discipline mm -hmm. because there's a set of rules, you solve them and you come to interesting conclusions. Right. Right. So you didn't have a math background and you find no. these models very easy to work with. That's interesting. No, I, I made the silly decision when I entered college to stop studying math because I thought I was more interested 
in the real world. Oh, so I took the minimum amount of of math. I just took um, one calculus class. So to, it wasn't the, the, the mathematics. It wasn't the mathematics that made all of this super easy. It was something else about just the overall uh, intuition or something yeah. like that. I, I have a always had a math aptitude, so I always found the math easy. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah. But you know, to get through the college level economics at that time, you don't, you didn't really need much out of calculus. If you knew how to take a derivative, that was good enough. Right, right. So, so you that had, was sufficient. So you had a professor that kind of uh, was influential because you ultimately do this PhD. So I mean, was there anybody at Occidental that was making an impression on you? There was a variety of of professors I I talked to, but the the one I was, um, um, but but no, no one really pushed me in a particular way to to get a PhD or anything else. I um that, uh, but when it was time for me to think about getting a PhD, I did talk to a number of professors, and I remember going to one person's office, and um, I've actually used the same stunt on future students. He. He says, okay, let me show you about economics. And he goes over to the shelf and pulls off an issue of Econometrica. I mm -hmm. believe it, it was Econometrica. And he opens up to a random page says, see, look at this. This is what you have to read and be able to do if you're going to be an <laughs> economist. So go bone up on some math. <laughs> oh, really? He tells you that? Yeah. Are you do so do you, do you end up doing that? Well, this was my senior year uh, when I was thinking about applying for PhDs probably at the end of my senior year. And um, so, in fact, what I did is I didn't go straight for a PhD program. I worked for one year in a commercial bank. And during that year, I applied for PhD programs. And I also took two night courses, um, uh, extension courses. Well, not uh, night courses at UCLA, um, one in multivariate calculus and one in, um, I guess, linear algebra. Okay. Okay. Did you notice when you took those classes, you were like, yeah, I really, this math aptitude might go a lot further than I thought it did. Um, I'm not sure. The, these courses were pretty simple because they're, they're not aimed at math majors. Ah. And so I, it, it was pretty elementary. Mm -hmm. I, I, again, yeah, I, I never found. I mean, I did. I did a bunch of stunts in college. I um, like when I took econometrics, there was a requirement that um, a prerequisite you have to have statistics, just like we do today. Mm -hmm. And somehow I I bullshitted my way out of having that prerequisite. I had not had statistics even, yeah. so I took the econometrics. And then afterwards, the professor or someone came to me and says, "Bruce, in order to get the degree in econ, you have to have a stats class." And uh, I thought you had it when you enrolled but somehow it's not on your record I said yeah. oh really um what do i do now i said why don't you go talk to a stats professor so i talked to a stats professor who was teaching the class and i said can i just take the final exam and <laughs> if i get a passing grade then i kind of kind of place out of this requirement yeah. and this is i guess the benefit of going to small school they said sure so <laughs> so he just sat me he just handed me the final exam i took it and um i think i got like 90 percent or something and <laughs> and so they gave me they just passed me out of the degree. And so I had just sat down and read through the textbook, you know, like in an afternoon. Yeah, that sounds efficient. That sounds like an efficient uh, approach. I mean, these that. undergrad stats classes at the time were pretty darn simple. Uh-huh, right, right. But it's, right. it's kind of embarrassing now because I, if a student came to me today, I would um, 
hang them up by the thumbnails if they try to pull that stunt. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do as I say, not what I did. Yeah. <laughs> well, so how quickly do you end up going to get your doctorate? Is it immediate or you do the little yeah. delay? So I, I worked for one year and then I, I, um, and I applied for PhD programs and I entered the following year. So it was one year out of, out of college. So when was that? And that would have been, that would have been early eighties. Mid eighties. I entered in 1985. 85. I, uh, and I went to Yale. Right. 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 So was it Yale like the typical way they tell you you applied everywhere, you go to the best school, or was there like you you had a sense that it it might be a, a really uniquely good fit? So I applied to six schools. I got into two, Berkeley and Yale. And um, Berkeley gave me a, a good financial deal and Yale did not. But Yale was outside of California. Oh, okay. so I went to Yale. So you went to Yale. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, well, um, so you step foot at Yale. Uh, um, what what happened? What's it like when you step foot there? You haven't been out of California. You're now in this this distinguished PhD program at Yale. What what happens? What's it like? It for me it was a transformation, complete transformation. Uh, because I think in my college years I didn't really learn economics. I learned upward sloping supply and downward sloping demand. I learned linear regression, but. Um, not to really understand it. And suddenly I was in a place where they took economics seriously mm. and not just as a set of rules, but of thinking deeply about how it works. And so for me, going to a PhD program was completely transformatory in everything in micro, macro, econometrics, mm. everything. And it was just a wonder mm. that for me, I hadn't been in, in an environment where research was done. And so I always thought of this knowledge as a set of established tools not uh -huh. as something that's in progress. Oh. So from day one, I just found it just eye-opening, wonderful intellectual experience. Mm. Mm. And so I just loved it. I, I, I really just fell in love with the whole idea of scholarly um, research in general and, and economics as well, just from the moment I walked into the door at Yale. Mm. Mm. So... So, like, what's an example of, like, a, an intellectual experience that happened that you sort of can tell was kind of transformative as a student? Well, the most transformative thing probably for my career was in this spring semester I took uh, linear regression from Peter Phillips, who ended up being my PhD advisor. And he was the most extraordinary um, teacher, lecturer um, imaginable, and everyone talks about this, that he, he would teach without lecture notes and would just fly around the board with his chalk and mm. proving theorem after theorem faster than anyone could possibly uh, comprehend. <laughs> um, and his intellectual energy and enthusiasm for the subject um, was captivating. Mm. Uh, he, it was a very popular class among the PhD students. It, it, and at that time, it was just the linear regression model in in amazing detail. Oh, yeah. So it was an it was your first econometrics class or it was a later? Yeah, one? the the fall class which was taught by Don Ant, Donald Andrews uh was probability and statistics. Mm. Uh, which was a fine which a which was a class but I wouldn't have called that transformative for my my energy level. But it was the econometrics class. Before you took that econometrics class were you kind of open-minded to where you might be going? I for still 
even 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 as I ended my second year in the PhD, I was still thinking about maybe doing something else. I, I went started graduate school thinking I'd be studying development, and then mm. I switched over to thinking oh, I might do macroeconomics. Mm. And I was still thinking about developing a dissertation in macro as a second year student. Mm. I think somewhere in the middle of my second year, I realized I'd probably be doing econometrics. Second year after you took Paul yeah. from, uh, Peter Phillips' class. So in the second year, we had a second an advanced class in econometrics in the fall that Don and Peter taught. Mm. And um, at some point, Peter pulled me into his office and um, handed me a, an econometrics problem and said, go solve this. Uh-huh. And it had to do with instrumental variables in a unit root setting. Uh. Um, and so he was trying to loop, loop me into being a research student. Do you solve it? Yeah. 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 It was like a weekend project. And um, then it, it didn't amount to anything. Mm. Um, but eventually uh, it, it led into our, our joint research paper. Oh, okay. Okay. So you, when do you start to feel like, so when do you start to feel like, you know, econometrics is, or what did you feel? Did you feel like you loved econometrics or did you find it easy or what was it that, what is it that's like driving this sorting into it? Yeah, that's a good question about why, because I, I could imagine have gone into another area of economics, but um, I was having trouble find, thinking of good research topics in other areas. And it seemed just easier for me to come up with research topics and econometrics. So um, perhaps it was a combination of, of being in an environment with Phillips at the time when he was such a generator of ideas um, and maybe I just gravitated towards the method of thinking that it became natural. And so, it, but once that kind of, that hump got over, then it just was self-fulfilling because it, mm. um, you kind of fall in love with the method of thinking and solving the problems and no turning back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what kind of stuff are you and Phillips working on as a grad student? So the problem that the problem in the air at the time that he was interested in was uh, the, the model of linear co-integration co between non-stationary time series. Hmm. And um, the the whole distribution theory for that type of econometrics was wide open and unknown. Oh. And the, there was a known problem that um, if you regress one non-stationary time series on, on another, that the least squares estimator had a a bias um, due to when there were kind of a simultaneity between the errors in, in the two equation in the two variables, mm. the bias and then the, the, the asymptotic distribution was mm. non-standard. So Peter came to me and said, you know, the traditional, so then he did this other thing. He pulls me into the office one day and says, you know, here's the solution possibly. The traditional and econometric solution to endogeneity is instrumental variables. So what if we um, use a another non-stationary instrumental variable? Um, what would be the distribution if we um, do that? So huh. he just he had this style. He just talked to you for one minute. <laughs> Probably it's not one minute, but it was a short period and like lay out the basic ideas. And then I got my marching orders. I went off and and worked out all the the details of the first draft. And um, we found some surprising results huh. that, uh, for example, the instrument could be completely independent of the regressors and the method still works, yeah. which is kind of bizarre. Uh -huh. uh, 
it didn't turn into a methodology that um, was productive. No one uses this technique, but mm. instead I realized that you, you could do something like a GLS transformation to the model. Um, when you write it down as a system, if you, if you write down the, the structural equation of interest and the driving equation of the regressors, view it as a system and do it kind of like a GLS transformation mm. that, um, then the estimator that comes out of that cleans out the endogeneity problem. Mm. And then the estimator has an asymptotic normal distribution. Wow. And that, um, then we put, it was put into our joint paper that had this instrumental variable idea and this idea that Peter then coined the name fully modified, fully modified least squares. Oh, and that was our, that is our joint paper. It was published in review of economic studies back in, 1990 that was my first paper together oh, our first wow. my first published paper and um that was your job market paper that ended up being um not my job market paper no um but it it's um uh very highly cited paper oh. uh, because of this impact on the co-integration literature um huh. that's a long time ago <laughs> but it, it that's interesting that it would be so w why wouldn't it not given the popularity of iv why do you think it's highly cited but then doesn't end up getting used i would think that that yeah would be Sorry, there's, there's there's two techniques there's the iv method and this fully modified idea and they're both in the same paper the, the iv method um isn't used because it turns out that in this co-integration setting it's it doesn't really help them it's not really a helpful way of getting rid of the endogeneity. Instead, oh. you, you really want to view the equations as a system and um, do this this transformation taking account of the system. So it's not um, it's really not um, endog it's not an IV solution. It's more like a GLS solution, oh, okay. and that turned out to be more popular. That second idea ended up being more popular. Even oh. then, it's not that popular. <laughs> I think in in that literature, instead, people move to um, system vector auto regression okay the, the most dominant method okay okay so so are you producing econometrics like that would be that you would say is like primarily useful for micro or primarily useful for macro or is it just so is it just very very general uh in in terms of its you know uh contribution yeah. usefulness well, in my early days, I started off being viewed as a time series econometrician because of my collaboration with Peter Phillips and this work in co-integration and some other papers. But then over time, my work ended up being less involved in time series and more involved in other areas of, mm. of econometrics. I think um, I've, I've made contributions to quite a, a number of disparate areas, so I don't see myself having a particular um Categorization. A lot of my work has been on model selection, model averaging. I've worked in non-parametrics and shrinkage estimation. Mm. I some of my most cited papers have to do with nonlinear um, threshold models, models with threshold um, uh, crossing um, mm. um, things. And and like the most cited paper there is for panel data. Mm. The, the biggest the biggest impact that we had there is a, a nonlinear threshold model for panel data. It's, um, I, I kind of didn't realize how important that was when I worked on it, but it, that paper's had a huge impact on uh, applied work mm. um, in panel data. I, I guess one of the things, so I'm kind of jumping up here, but 
one of the things that's kind of driven the way I like to think about it, econometric work that I do has always been trying to motivate on what applied people need. Mm. So I've always tried to focus on what um, methods actually will be used. Mm. A lot of econometric theory that gets published in the top journals never is used by applied audience. And so mm. gets minimal amount of citations. Oh. Um, I've always tried to think about whether or not the technique will be used or not. Not You can't always be successful in that. Sometimes your favorite ideas no one cares about. Mm. Um, but it seems to be senseless to work on techniques that will, in the end, just sit in the theory journal. Why do you think you're like that? Is that strategic or is that a natural part of your personality? It could be part of my personality. Um, it also... Um, just the influence of talking with other people in the econometrics profession, mm. hearing the skeptic. Sometimes, it's, ever since I started, I've always heard the skepticism that oh, econometric theory is useless, that no one really cares, or that, or that there's a separation between applied and theory. People always are saying that, and it's always a caricature, a straw man. The yeah. fact is that there's always the people who care about actually having an impact. Right. Um, and um so how so, do you how did you go about that how did you go about sort of figuring out they need this it's kind of i mean that's there's a lot of time and attention that you would have to devote to that right yeah um that it, it's easy to say it's hard to do it's like when the students come to you early on and they say so how do i start a research project and then right. I turn it around and say, well, what are you interested in? Right. And, and um, there, there's no, um, that, you know, there's no way to, to, to tell someone how to start a research project. So if you start out by saying you need to do something that's relevant, um, how do you do that? So I think what, what I did is as an assistant professor, I attended lots of um, applied workshops in economics. I, I just I read, I just sat down and read through the top journals um, as I came out. I attended a lot of workshops and just tried to pay attention to what was going on in applied e economics. Mm. So that was the 1990s, mm. um, roughly speaking. Um, the world's changed a lot since then, but that was roughly starting the beginning of the data revolution uh, oh. where economics. See, back when I was in grad school, I would say, back in the 1980s, economics was more theoretical. Right. That people would solve models, come up with some partial derivatives, and say, look, taxes caused this to happen. Tariffs yeah. caused this to happen. Um, and data sets were limited. Right. And then... Um, in the 90s, things started to switch, and somewhere around 2000 or so, suddenly we had this data explosion where everyone has big data sets, lots of data. Now the journals are swimming with data applications. Right. Right. So does that – that's really interesting. That would be something that would increase the demand for econometrics potentially is just the availability of data. Uh, and did you feel that in the air? Yeah, no, you really huh. see it. And I'm, I'm think I'm slow on the uptake, uh -huh. but I see maybe maybe others are even more slow. But the the what I see is that what's going on in the applied world is light years ahead of what's going on in econometric methodology because the econometricians are always trying to um, 
work things out in careful detail. But when you do applied work, you just want to get it done. Right. And so people just go and say, I'm going to work out this model that has these complex dependence, network structure, um, et cetera. But, but in econometric methodology, we have no idea about the right way to do things. Right. So right. we're paying catch up. Oh, oh. But that also might raise the marginal value of the work because there's obviously built up demand for all those things already. I think so. Yeah. I think so. It's just that oftentimes it's hard to to develop methods that um, reach all the needs that 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 practitioners need. Yeah, yeah. We, people well, see so people who have complicated models. You end up at Rochester in '89, and I mean, I don't want to you know, make you uncomfortable in the sense of like flattering you, but you get tenure. It looks like three years later. Actually it was untenured associate. Oh, untenured associate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but is that, but, is that a state, but was that still kind of, was that standard at Rochester or was that still? No. Kind of, oh, okay. So there was kind of this, I wrote it, it here. Was an er, it was an early promotion. It was an early promotion. So it sounds like you hit the ground running. Like you just, you sort of yeah. were, why do you think you, why, why was that? Is that your ability or is that something with something else that just made you so well prepared for when you hit assistant? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, yeah. You don't want to embarrass me, but so, so I, I went into graduate school. So I went into graduate school completely unprepared, knowing nothing. Yeah. Uh, I, during, during graduate school, for example, I sat down and read Rudin's principles of analysis, just so uh -huh. I could learn analysis. Right. Yeah. I, but then I finished grad school in four years, and, uh -huh. um, which which would seem kind of weird today. Even back then, that's very fast, right? Yeah, that was the a mode bit would have been five. Side. Yeah, and so I got I started at my job in 1989, and then um, I think in 1992 I pub, and I I was publishing like six papers a year. Unreal. And, and like I, I, my wife likes laughs about the time that I wrote a paper over a weekend. These are pure econometric theory papers. Well, that that is actually a note I published in Econometrica. Wow! On on um, hack estimation. It seems like I just like got that... an idea. I just wrote it down. I'm just sent to it. I, I would do things stupid. I would do really stupid things. I would sit down to get ideas, write them up, send them to journals the next day. Well, <laughs> but it sounds like you had the ability to write a manuscript and do the do the work yeah. really fast. You had a good sense of what the structure yeah. was. And, and the style was different then. The style was um, simpler. Now, now people, when, when we write papers, expect them to be more thorough and detailed and, and mm. 500 pages long. Mm. It must have <laughs> still, I mean, what was it like as an econometrician getting these econometricas back then? Is it the same kind of feeling you think now? I mean, those are just, you know, such like, you know, such uniquely amazing experiences was it just like that for you back then yeah it was, it was very hard to, i mean most of my my submissions to econometrica were rejected and the it, it um it's always has been very hard mm -hmm. and always been a sense that the referees are really really top-notch and and thorough and unimpressed <laughs> right 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 <laughs> right so you just when when you when I ask you how come you hit the ground running part part of it sounds like you you just were uh, the way your brain worked it was really a, a perfect 
for for that time. What is it about it though? You just you just sort of have you had the ability to spot a problem and and you had the ability to solve it and knew how to write a paper. Yeah, I think in the night. So the one way I see things is that there was a real revolution in econometrics in the 1980s. Before, oh. if roughly speaking, before 1980, we were very old school. Everything was just linear algebra and and simple. But then in the 1980s, we had this huge revolution of bringing in the nonlinear. Um, estimators and and semi-parametrics and non-parametrics. Uh-huh. And what you suddenly you see is a, a shift of that um, most people, when, when I was a new PhD, so people who were over like 40, 45 years old were doing completely useless work to, mm. to a large extent that most of the older generation were um, had old skills and they couldn't bronchize. But now mm. if you look today, it's not the case that, that the older generation are useless. People like Whitney Newey or Don Anders or stuff are still doing exciting work because the tools that they developed in the 1980s are still alive today. It's just that oh. we're, we've we've stepped up, but the basic revolution in the school in the skill set I think occurred in the 1980s. So huh. I was in graduate school at just just the right time when suddenly we transitioned from this kind of low tech econometrics huh. to the modern set of skills, huh. um, and so any of us who kind of got trained in econometrics late 1980s and on um, are still conversant with what's going on or can be still conversant with what's going on. But it, but it ends up being that therefore in the 1990s, there was just a huge amount of work that was easy to do. Huh. It was just easy to, to um, make contributions then. I think it's much harder now. Uh-huh. Wait, so are there some, key drivers some key people that are kind of laying down this new architecture that's got this widespread influence well i think that the lot of the, the work in the econometrics in the 1980s was driven by um some very key people hal white oh. lars hansen donald andrews whitney mm. newey jim powell mm. and then in the time series world people like peter phillips and the, uh mark watts and jim stock Mm. Uh, Chris Sims. So there, there were um, a number of people who were um, bringing the the profession forward in a, in a dramatic way. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot of names there. But, yeah. But but the the style and you're of work. drinking from the source by being Peter's yeah. student. So yeah. you're in a great position to kind of see this this landscape that you could immediately start contributing to. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Cool. Yeah, so but it was important then to really be at a top school where you could mm-hmm. work with a one of the few people, the the very few people kind of really pushing things out. Wow, 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 that's really cool. So when you go up for tenure, this kind of I think correlated with what you're saying. You know, at <laughs> least at least sometimes, uh, at least how I think, you know, you go up for tenure, you have to try to explain your professional identity, not just explain your papers, but like, who am I? Cause you got all these colleagues that are voting and they're not necessarily econometricians. And so <laughs> everybody's got to kind of explain who Bruce Hansen is to each other, both the letter writers and yourself. So what would they have said back then? Like, who are you? What kind of, econ- what kind of economist are you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I I remember seeing this once written up in one of those NSF um, 
referee reports where people are really talking less about the specific proposal than they're talking about you as a scholar. And that, and they, someone wrote up that I was um, someone who works on technically hard problems. I forgot exactly how they <laughs> phrase it, but but um, hard technically hard econometric problems. So that's oh. how I was characterized in the 1990s was that I, I tried, tried to work on things that were viewed as, as um, hard statistical, hard technical problems. Do you feel like that's true? For that era. Did you, feel, did you feel like that? Yeah, I think I are? gravitated toward, towards the, the harder, the, the things that were viewed at the time as harder problems. Oh. Now the things that were viewed as harder are now viewed as standard. Uh-huh, right. right. Now what's hard is really hard. Well, so you said earlier, you said Havelmo was one of the greatest or the greatest econometrician in history. And I'm just kind of curious a little bit about what was it, what is it about Havelmo that's really always kind of made that impression on you? I, what made, makes the impression for me about Havelmo, and I might not be 100% right that he was the, the only person here, but he put us on a probabilistic foundation that mm -hmm. um, it, it's a transition of going from econometrics to think from algebra that looks at sample means and regressions to thinking about economic model as coming from a probability mechanism. Uh huh. So I'm not just fitting Y's on X's, but I'm thinking of that the errors are stochastic. I'm thinking of Y as stochastic. Mm hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that um, intellectual viewpoint now dominates the way we always think about econometric estimation. Everyone always thinks about that it's stochastic. The, the data is coming from a stochastic mechanism of some form or another, uh -huh. and that you have to take that seriously when you think about doing learning an inference mm -hmm. on the model. Mm. Did you get I mean, that? The one exception might be like some calibration literature or something, but yeah, right, right. Well, that's a great pivot now to talking about your uh, some more of your research because you have these two textbooks that just came out in 2022, and one of them is probability and the other is econometrics. So it's kind of interesting you said that because you've clearly committed to this like complete marriage of the two such that you write these two massive books on it. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of those books? Yeah. In fact, um, so I can advertise since we, uh, you mentioned I have, yeah. have them on my debt. Whoa. They don't come up with my thing here, but um, so the history of the books is, is that I started um, when I started teaching at, at, at Wisconsin, when I came here in 1998, um, I, I was, writing up lecture notes for my course. And at some point a student said, you know, you should write that into a textbook. And I said, uh -huh. yeah, right. And um, slowly working on those lecture notes year after year, building it, um, becoming more and more thorough. At one point I, I said, I, I just have to bite the bullet and um, make it into a professional textbook. And then yeah. at that point I worked on it full time for a while. And that was a huge amount of work. Yeah. And, and that became this this big thick um, um, <laughs> um, volume. Yeah. And then I was assigned to teach once again the the fall class in our program, which we recover probability and statistics, where uh -huh. we'd been using um, um, the, the basic statistics textbooks. And we, I realized that it's just not written for economists. Uh huh. And I realized that mm. um, I wanted to write up lecture notes that were 
more geared to the way most economists think about probability and statistics. Right. And I just wrote that up from the from the get-go. And so once I realized that, I realized I should write that up as a companion textbook. And that was much easier to write. So this this book on probability and statistics, um, much, much thinner, um, was a very quick write-up because it's not so thought-provoking. It's just writing up what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty happy with that as a it's a it's not pretty pretty non-confrontational non um controversial. Uh-huh. But well, it provides the foundation. Not some econometrics people programs people want to jump right into econometrics, right. assuming that everyone knows probability and statistics beforehand. Yeah. But a lot of programs people like to have a formal course in probability and statistics so that all the students can come up to the same level. Yeah, we had a I think we had an Amemia book uh for our probability and statistics class. Would you say that this book sort of has like uh, like a tradition in economics of writing these probabilities and probability book, probability stats books? There's a number of good people who have written this book over here. Amamia, Ron Gallant, Oliver Linton. There's a number of people who have written up exactly this for the same market niche. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the one difference is I wrote mine up with a more of an economics focus. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's not fundamentally different. Uh, yeah. Well, what about your economics book? There's, there's also like you know Wooldridge, and then there's you know Cameron and Trevetti, and there's Bill Green, and there's like these. There's this bundle of traditional econometrics books, but clearly you wouldn't have written a book that big if you didn't feel like there was this missing book. So what is yeah. what's the missing yeah. book that you wrote? Well, well, it, it's mostly competitive, perhaps in style with Bill Green's book, and that is in like eighth edition or something. It's it's very old, so it, it, that's pretty and outdated. He, I interviewed him, and he said that's it. He's not doing it anymore. Yeah, it, right. it, you know, so that I don't think there's any question, but but that's a dated thing. I think Jeff Woldridge's book is aimed at a more narrow in some dimensions and, and more advanced in other dimensions, and it's yeah. it's also like twenty years old now. Right. Right. Um, that's, you know, I, I love Jeff's writing. He, he is phenomenal. Um, mm -hmm. Cameron and Trevetti is aimed at a, at a more, in a way more advanced, um, but more narrow focus. Oh. So um, just microeconometrics. It, it, it's not as theoretical. I think what I've tried to do in my book is cover all bases. It's, it, it's focuses on the core traditional models and econometrics, and then has a lot of modern topics in econometrics i try to in some ways it's still very old-fashioned that it's it, it takes a, tr a traditional approach to econometric yeah. modeling uh -huh. um, and despite being a, a thousand pages long it doesn't cover topics that everyone's interested in it, it uh -huh. still focuses on core issues oh uh, so i mean and i can't make it longer it's just like you know this is yeah, that's like, right it's, you'll get hurt <laughs> yeah you get hurt carrying it well so Oh, okay. That's really helpful. So you keep saying it's not as advanced. It's more like Bill Green. So it's like, should I be, so the, the, the ideal audience, where, who is the odd ideal professor and who is the ideal student for this book? Well, I wrote the book intending for first year PhD economic oh, students. Okay. Okay. For the first year, that's what we, where we, we're exactly the level we teach. There yeah. are a lot of things in it that are more now, for many first-year PhD students, they'll consider it too advanced. That uh, they will. Okay. 
But that, that's you always can pick and choose with a textbook. Yeah. But I'm getting a lot of emails from people who are using it in undergraduate instruction. Oh, really? And wow. They're using it for advanced econometrics classes. Oh. Um, and I get other contacts, people saying they're using it in master's levels, um, econometrics classes. And that would oh. be a reasonable thing um, to do as well, just as you might use Bill Green's book for a master's level. Yeah, right. Uh, econometrics. Right. Um, the audience would need to be conversant with linear algebra, obviously. Yeah. So the way we teach undergraduate econometrics does not use linear algebra, which right. maybe that's a mistake, but um, that, you know, that, that audience would not be appropriate. The other audience you mentioned researchers, I think it, the book is useful for anyone who is a research economist who wants to have an up-to-date reference on, on a lot of methods. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, when I wrote my book, I was really looking up to you, for a lot of reasons, but one of them was that your, your books were free for a while. You used to have them <laughs> as PDFs on your, on your website. Yeah. It went through like a lot of editions before you actually <laughs> yeah. published it. That's because it took me, well, it was taking me forever to finish it. And while I was trying to finish it, I, I didn't want people not to have it available. Yeah. I was torn on the issue of publishing it, um, making it less available in a way that uh, versus free. I also though realized that having it simply free on my own personal website, a lot of people didn't know it existed. It, it really does curtail the market expanse. Mm. Um, so it, it has its pluses and minuses. Right. The one minus that I'm less excited about um, is that in developing countries, um, young students would, will find that the price of, of, of this yeah. book is, is un, un, Attainable, unattainable. Yeah, and that I, is unfortunate. It's hard to figure out the price discrimination for a book, obviously, because it can it'll have arbitrage stuff. But like, yeah, I totally, I totally get that. Uh, and that's kind of the tragedy I feel like of the way that America is kind of the center for a lot of econometrics, and then Europe second, and then it just is, it it's like slower to get to certain places. And I bet the price of books probably is probably not trivial. Um, well, I want to talk about something too. You had this, a lot of buzz, I think, uh, about this econometrica from 2022, a, a modern Gauss-Markov theorem. And, you know, I, I think like get the, I think it has a lot of buzz because Everybody knows if you're a PhD economist and even even an undergrad that takes it, the, the Gauss-Markov assumptions might be the only thing some people even remember. You know, it's like because they might not go into econometrics, but they had to go through those theorems really closely. For the sake of the listener, can you sort of tell me about this paper? Where did it come from and why do you think it, Matt, why do you think it makes such a relevant contribution? Well, it came from that I put the result in, in this textbook. I've oh. been thinking about this for a long time. Um, Gary Chamberlain had challenged me to, to think about the finite sample efficiency issue of efficiency once when we were in a conversation. And eventually, I'd worked on it slowly, 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 trying to improve that section of my textbook. I mm. put it in, and then my colleague, Jack Porter, turned to me. said, I can't believe it. I was reading this part of your current version. And he had this amazing result. Where did that come from? I said, well, it's just, you know, that's just the way it is. He said, you got to publish this. Huh. I said, you sure? 
And so um, I send it off to Econometrica and, and um, indeed people take it um, surprisingly. So what, what is the issue? It, it's that we typically teach that least squares is blue, the best linear unbiased estimator. And what yeah. I show is that um, at least in the context of independent samples, it's um, the best unbiased estimator that the restriction to the class of linear, meaning linear and Y is unnecessary. Huh. It's so we should stop teaching blue. We sh literally should stop teaching blue. We should teach that the sample mean is the best unbiased estimator. Oh. The least squares estimator is the best unbiased estimator. Wow. There's no reason to. The only reason for linearity is to make the proof easy. We all know is that, that right. The proof is really easy under linearity, but uh -huh. it's so silly. What What's the reason that we would say that we look at among linear estimators, it's intellectually silly. Uh-huh. This um, is your approach, this is your attraction to the these guys saying Bruce Hansen in the 90s is somebody who works on hard technical problems. Is that like part of this? You're sort of Chamberlain challenges you and it was a hard technical proof to kind of work through this? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the math at the end is really easy, but it, it was conceptually coming up with uh, an approach to solve it. Um, because this is something that, like, Chamberlain, yeah, this is something that Whitney Newey had worked on, that Gary Chamberlain worked on. Yeah. Um, th this is a, a core idea that goes back ages. Huh. And once you stated it, it seems like obvious. Huh. But, um, I mean, part of it, of course, maybe so, you say everyone comes away from, undergraduate econometrics, that's all they remember. Uh -huh. But in some fundamental sense, it's not really important. I mean, you know, who, right. who really cares? It's that but, acronym. <laughs> but, but people teach the blue assumptions. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, well, B-U-E is not going to roll off the tongue as easily as blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, this is true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny in the, the econometrica of the abstract, you say we can drop the label linear estimator from the pedagogy of Gauss-Markov. I thought that was interesting that you put pedagogy in it and you just said quit teaching it. Is it, is it true that, I guess, I mean, if you wrote a textbook, this does seem true, but I'm just kind of interested. It sounds like the teaching of econometrics and not just the econometrics, they're like separately important to you is that right well it's just that i don't think that the 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 blue concept has any impact on the way we do econometrics oh that it it's only the way we teach it now it, oh. maybe in the sense that it, it 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 goes there's a question of the core, the core question is what is the best estimator in a, in a certain context? So it's semi-parametric efficiency bound, and it it is providing a, a lens into how to think about semi-parametric efficiency bounds, mm -hmm. and therefore saying this is. But it doesn't in a linear regression model. We're still going to estimate by least squares. It doesn't right. change that. In fact, right. um, the editor who handled this, Guido Embens, who also you've interviewed, yeah. in his cover letter to me says he was very surprised that he would ever publish a paper that has no practical application. Huh. I forgot huh. exactly the way he phrased it, but he, he was just saying that his, his intention as econometrica editor was only to publish things that had um, practical 
implications, and this paper has none. <laughs> and but yet it, he loved it, and yet he yeah, thought and he said, really but it's an obvious publication, and um, uh -huh. and so he was just he was trying to give a a type of compliment in a way of, yeah. of saying that um, in this case it was it's, it's something he, he thought should be published. Well, it's funny then that you didn't see that it should be published. Jack Porter sees that you should be published. So has it, has this been, and now it seems obvious. I mean, by the, that, that it should, that it's going to be very impactful, but has it surprised you that there was this potential for the paper? Cause you just kind of had it in the book as a proof. Well, I mean, once it's kind of, yeah, I know it's, uh, the, well, to publish it, I had to, Pump really it up and make it, it. Yeah, make yeah, it yeah. more more rigorous in a way, but right. the, um, I, I I don't expect this paper to get many citations mm. because it's not going to it's not going to change the way anyone does econometric research. Got it. But it, Got it. What I'm hoping for is that it changes the way people teach the subject. <laughs> so is that the case? The driver of econometric citations is the applied people, as opposed to the econometricians. That's really the the fuel that pushes these citations up. In general, but but in this particular case, I don't think it'll be cited by theorists because it's not going to change the way anyone writes a theory paper. I got you. So you can get, get citations two ways. One is impacting other econometric methodologists and theorists, but you get much bigger set of citations yeah. by changing um, the way people do applied work. Some and of the most insightful papers in econometric theory have a modest level of citations mm. because, but they're cited by very smart people and smart papers. Um, right. Right. But the right. biggest cite, like historically, of course, historically, maybe the, the most cited papers are both. Yeah. I remember it used to be the case. The most cited paper was how white's papers. I was just about to how's white paper on, on heteroscedasticity. Yeah. Because everyone was using it. Yeah. But then that paper becomes like, uh, Kleenex or uh, Xerox. <laughs> it's like you don't even cite it anymore because it's uh, it's just like standardized. You just kind of do it. The the robust yeah. header. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I sometimes ask my guests, you know, if you could go back in time and talk to your old self when he was a student or maybe an assistant professor, you know, are, are there things that he thought was important that you would sort of wish you could tell him more about or are there things maybe he didn't see that you wish you could tell him something about and i ask it both because i'm curious what you're going to say but you know i'm also asking it because obviously there's a bunch of people that are that that young person right now and so i'm just kind of curious you know what was it that you've sort of now think about that you think you know i did not think about that correctly back then or i didn't even know about it back then that you think is really important as your career progressed I, I, yeah it's a hard question because it's hard to rerun run the world um but uh i i yeah i i wouldn't have done too much differently yeah but, um i i mean i can say simple things like i should have studied more broadly or learned more things and, and paid more attention to um, things I didn't know about, but the fact was that um, you only have a finite amount of time. What what else can you learn? Like I've I've sometimes had regret that I didn't study more mathematics early on. I I became my, my one mistake uh, early on was that I because I started getting in this more political interest, I stopped mm. studying math, and then I had to pick it up later. Right. Um, so, so I I would have been better off if I had taken more math classes as a young person. 
Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's kind of funny that, that, that orientation towards the real world and, you know, then you're going to econometrics, which is such, you go into pure theoretical econometrics, you would think, well, this, I don't see the connection, but you kept saying you've always been doing econometrics that was practically useful for the real world. So it's kind of like you never really lost. You didn't seem like you really ever lost that core pull towards helping people in the real world. Is that true? You feel like that's in a way, except that I, I'm not working on trying to solve the problem of poverty. That's true. Yeah, sure. But somebody reading it, somebody using you is though. Uh, That's the hope. That's the hope. That's great. Well, it's really so nice to meet in person. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the the podcast and let me hear your story. Uh, It's really nice. Well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Well, you have a great day and a great rest of the week. You too. Well, it's the end of the week, but have a great day. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Bye.